Welcome to the Come Follow Me with David Ridges podcast. I'm your guest host, Ari Vandegraaff, author of the Scripture Sunday Activity Book. This week's discussion covers Ether chapters 6 through 11 for the week of November 16 through 22. Alone and hunted by hostile Lamanites, Moroni faced the overwhelming task of abridging the history of the Jaredite people. This history came from the 24 plates of ether discovered by King Limhi's people when they stumbled upon the remains of the once great Jaredite civilization. In abridging and including the Jaredite record in the Book of Mormon, Moroni fulfilled a promise his father Mormon had made in Mosiah 28:19, that this account shall be written hereafter, for behold, it is expedient that all people should know the things which are written in this account. As we consider Moroni's account of the Jaredite people, just remember that the book of Ether is only a fraction of his work. In addition to the 15 chapters of the book of Ether, Moroni also transcribed a vision of the brother of Jared that included the entire history of mankind. Moroni's translation of this vision makes up the sealed portion of the gold plates from which Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon. According to associates of Joseph Smith, the sealed portion made up anywhere from a half to two-thirds of the plates. When we think of the Book of Mormon scribes, I don't think we usually recognize that Moroni produced more of the content of the gold plates than Mormon, Nephi, and Jacob combined. Leaving the sealed portion aside, although how cool would it be to listen to that Come Follow Me podcast lesson? Let's talk more about the Book of Ether. I'm intrigued by the structure of the book. Moroni spends six chapters on the first generation of Jaredites, four chapters on the last generation of Jaredites, and in between those chapters, he squeezes 28 generations of Jaredites into the remaining five chapters. And you thought 4th Nephi moved quickly. This week, we're covering the final chapter dealing with the brother of Jared and those five chapters covering everything else until the last few decades of Jaredite history. As you'll remember from last week's lesson, Jared, his brother, and their friends were present at the Tower of Babel, were blessed by the Lord, and then embarked on a journey to a promised land. After traveling over a number of small bodies of water, the group settled on the coast of a great ocean for four years until the brother of Jared is directed to build barges to cross the great water. When we think of the challenges the brother of Jared and his people faced in crossing the great sea, we usually focus on the two problems the brother of Jared brought to the Lord during their discussion on Mount Shelem, namely the lack of light in the barges and the lack of air. But there was a third problem, a lack of means to steer the vessel. We rightfully credit the brother of Jared with an abundance of faith. But let's pause and give some credit to his brother, their families, and friends. They were willing to enter into the barges for a nearly one-year journey without so much as an oar to steer them. Instead, the Lord promised and delivered a furious wind blown upon the face of the waters towards the promised land. Make no mistake, the wind was furious. Moroni recounts that they were many times buried in the depths of the sea because of the mountain waves which broke upon them and also the great and terrible tempests 
which were caused by the fierceness of the wind. My wife likes to point out every time we read these chapters that the fact that the barges had air holes prepared on both the top and the bottom of the vessels suggests that at various points during their journey, up was down and down was up. It was no cruise trip. Latter-day Saint author S. Michael Wilcox provided some insight on the Jaredite journey across the Great Sea as he applied that journey to our own lives in a 2009 BYU-Hawaii devotional. He said, Now the reason the Jaredites need tight like a dish ships is because there are going to be mountain waves. Now what causes mountain waves in the ocean? Wind and storm. And what did the Lord just say the source of the winds were? The winds have gone forth out of my mouth, and the rains and the floods have I sent forth. Do you have a solution to the problem? If I were the brother of Jared, I would have said, Lord, we don't need these tight-like-a-dish ships at all. Since waves are the problem, and waves are caused by wind, and wind comes out of your mouth, blow softly, blow softly, breeze us to the promised land. We'll sit on deck, we'll fish, we'll get tanned, we'll play shuffleboard. How many here want the cruise version of life? That's me. I don't like mountain waves. And then the great lesson. We know God can still the storms of our lives. We know that. There are precedents. But he prefers to do something else. Behold, I prepare you against these things. For you cannot credit Cross this great deep, save I prepare you against the waves of the sea, and the winds which have gone forth, and the floods which shall come. What will ye that I should prepare for you, that ye may have light, when you are swallowed up in the depths of the sea? What we need to understand about our Father in heaven is that he prefers to prepare us to face the storms of life, the contrary winds, rather than to still them. I love this thought by Brother Wilcox, because honestly, after the year we're all enduring, isn't it nice to know that God is at the will, that sometimes the furious winds we encounter are because he is intent on making sure we make it to our own promised land? During last month's general conference, we heard many messages of hope for these times, messages that the storms we're experiencing can be for our good. Here are just a few examples. From President Henry B. Eyring. You might reasonably wonder why a loving and all-powerful God allows our mortal test to be so hard. It is because He knows that we must grow in spiritual cleanliness and stature to be able to live in His presence in families forever. From Elder Jeffrey R. Holland. The point is that faith means trusting God in good times and bad. Even if that includes some suffering until we see his arm revealed in our behalf. That can be difficult in our modern world. When many have come to believe that the highest good in life is to avoid all suffering, that no one should ever anguish over anything. But that belief will never lead us to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. 
and from Elder Dieter F. Uchtdorf. We will endure this, yes, but we will do more than simply grit our teeth, hold on, and wait for things to return to the old normal. We will move forward, and we will be better as a result. Now, I recognize that we can simultaneously be aware that our adversity and our afflictions shall be but a small moment, and if we endure it well, God shall exalt us on high, while at the same time bemoaning our current circumstances. Bad things happen to good people. Life isn't fair is a common refrain we've likely all uttered. In fact, it was while I was uttering those very words that I experienced a life-changing epiphany years ago that I hope might help you if you are feeling overwhelmed with all the winds and waves surging against you. On one particularly tough day, I remember muttering to myself that life wasn't fair. As I dwelt on this thought, I made a mental inventory of all the bad things that had happened to me, someone I considered a basically good person. As I did so, a reproachful thought came into my head. Did I really think I was the only good person to experience adversity? Of course not, I reasoned. Why, I was sure that as far as cosmic unfairness, there were plenty of people much better than me who have suffered much worse than me. It was then that I thought of the ultimate example of bad things happening to a good person, our Savior Jesus Christ. There was no question that he is better than all of us. After all, he led a perfect life without sin. There is also no question that he suffered more than us, for he suffered for all of us. As I continued in my morass, I admitted that if anyone had the right to complain about life being unfair, it was Jesus Christ. And then it hit me. I complained about fairness, but I don't want fairness. Fairness includes the full consequences of sin and poor decisions. Fairness dictates that you and I and every person who has ever lived or who ever will live suffer an eternal fate separated from our Heavenly Father and the glory He offers because of our wicked actions. No, I don't want fair. I want mercy. And because Christ chose to live the ultimate unfair life, mercy is available to each and every one of us. Don't get me wrong. I readily acknowledge that for many of us, this life can be very, very hard, tragic even. But taken as a whole, including pre- and post-mortal life, the cosmic scales come out in our favor. Believe me when I tell you that this epiphany has greatly affected the way I face challenges. I am more grateful for the blessings I enjoy. I am better prepared to deal with challenges or setbacks. And now, when someone opines that life isn't fair, I am inclined to internally retort and thank heavens for that. Let me make one more observation on the Jaredites' journey over and occasionally under the great waters. Despite the fact that they were tossed upon the waves of the sea before the wind, despite the fact that they were many times buried in the depths of the sea because of the mountain waves which broke upon them, and also the great and terrible tempests which were caused by the fierceness of the wind, despite the fact that their journey lasted 344 days, despite all of these hardships, they did sing praises unto the Lord. That the brother of Jared and his people would sing praises unto the Lord during challenging circumstances, 
reminds me of the members of the church who made the difficult journey across North America to the Salt Lake Valley alongside wagons or pushing handcarts. When we think of the pioneers, we are naturally drawn to the stories of the Martin Handcart Company. We think of the hardships and the tragedies associated with the trek. But when we think of the pioneers, we should also remember that they were explicitly commanded through revelation found in Doctrine and Covenants section 136 to praise the Lord with singing, with music, with dancing, and with a prayer of praise and thanksgiving. Despite our challenges, despite our hardships, we can follow the examples of the brother of Jared and his people, as well as that of the Latter-day Saint pioneers, and find joy in even the most challenging circumstances. Finally, after nearly a year on their barges, the brother of Jared's people arrived in the Promised Land. There they settled and began raising their families. Nearing the end of his life, the brother of Jared calls his people together for a final blessing. Along with Jared, he asks his people what they can do for them. The people respond with a request. They would like a king. The brother of Jared bemoans this request, arguing that it will lead to captivity. But the people insist, and Jared convinces his brother to relent in his objection. When asked who the people would like to have be their king, they select the brother of Jared's oldest son. But the brother of Jared's son refuses to serve, as do all of the brother of Jared's other sons. The people then request that Jared's oldest son serve as their king, but he refuses as well. In fact, one by one, all of Jared's sons refuse until his youngest son, Orihah, relents and agrees to be the first Jaredite king. Orihah's appointment to the throne helps answer two of the biggest mysteries of the Book of Ether. First, why wasn't the brother of Jared's name given in the record? And second, what was up with the weird Jaredite method of succession? I'm a cartoonist. My gags are regularly published in church magazines and shared on social media. Visit my website, wardcartoonist.com. If you've only seen one of my cartoons, chances are it has to do with Jared from the Book of Ether. It's been shared far more than any other of my gags. Now, cartooning is a visual medium. But let me try to describe the joke to you. Okay, picture this. Jared is filling out a family group sheet. He's thinking to himself, this is so easy, as he adds the father of Jared, the mother of Jared, the grandmother of Jared, the grandfather of Jared, and on and on. So why does Jared get named in the record while his more righteous brother doesn't? I believe it all comes down to the line of kings. Jared's son was appointed as the first king. Ether comes 29 generations later, after the kingdom would have been controlled by Jared's line for over a millennium. It is very likely that the brother of Jared's name could have been scrubbed somewhere along that time in an effort to exalt Jared's role in the origin story of the people. In doing so, you'd be honoring the king who is a direct descendant of Jared. It is very likely that Moroni only referred to the brother of Jared that way because that was the only way he was referred to in the 24 plates of Ether. After all, history is written by the victors. The only reason we know the brother of Jared's name was because of a baby blessing. During the early days of the church, brother Reynolds Cahoon asked 
Joseph Smith if he wouldn't mind blessing and naming his newborn baby. Joseph obliged and named the boy Mahanrai Moriankumar, explaining that the Lord revealed to him that this was the name of the brother of Jared. This was unfortunate for the Cahoons, but a boon for us. Incidentally, this story, along with that of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah naming his son Mahir Shalal Hash Baz, provide us with a valuable life lesson. Don't let the prophet name your child. Okay, so that explains why Mahanrai Moriankumar is called the brother of Jared. Why do the Jaredites use such a funky practice in selecting their kings? A careful reading of the Book of Ether makes it clear that it is the youngest-born son and not the oldest who inherits the kingdom. It also seems clear that this system of government resulted in a number of cases of patricide and other various attempts on the lives of the royal family. I'm sure even the most despondent American coming off a historically bitter election would agree that the Jaredite form of government was a mess. So why did they do it? Again, let's look to Ariah, the first Jaredite king, for our answer. Remember that Ariah was Jared's youngest son. Each of his older brothers, along with all of Mahanrai Moriankumar's sons, had refused to accept the crown. Because the first Jaredite king was the youngest born, I suspect the nation decided that every Jaredite king would need to be the youngest born. Now what I find even more fascinating is that there are other examples from various cultures of the youngest born son inheriting the right of succession. Examples can be found in parts of Mongolia, China, and England. While a relatively rare practice, it was common enough to warrant a name, ultimogeniture. Feel free to tuck that away the next time you want to impress your friends at a dinner party. John Welch, who has thought longer and deeper about the Book of Mormon than just about anyone, has some thoughts on the Jaredite ultimogeniture system of government and highlights other possible examples in the Book of Mormon. Welch postulates that there might have been some benefits to such a system of government, especially when the nation was agriculturally based. According to Welch, in an agrarian world, the older sons were needed to till the fields and take care of the herds. They typically worked in agriculture or learned to be businessmen or craftsmen. Usually, the younger sons, the favorite sons, stayed home, studied, learned languages, and became educated and trained. They had a closer relationship with their father. I think we see that with Nephi. Nephi recorded having been born of goodly parents, therefore I was taught somewhat in all the learning of my father. Nephi was a record keeper. He became the successor to Lehi. When you look at how succession in the early part of the Book of Mormon went from Jacob to Enos to Jerem and to Omni, only a few generations covered a lot of years. In order for that to make sense, Enos was likely born very late in Jacob's life. Jerem was likely born very late in Enos's life. As a king or patriarch of a family aged, he could leave much of the day-to-day -day dealings to his older sons. The father would have had more time to train and school a younger son as a successor and give him all of the necessary ex expertise in politics, linguistics, and economics. A powerful king or patriarch would not have wanted to train his sons too soon, lest they upstage the father. 
ancient kings and patriarchs often selected their younger sons as successors. Regardless of any potential advantages of such a form of government, the record is full of examples of the system breaking down. In fact, the Jaredites don't have to wait long for Mahanrai Moriankumar's warning that the people's desire for a king would lead to captivity. Ariha's successor, Kib, is overthrown by a jealous son and finds himself in captivity for many years. According to Moroni's abridgment, no less than nine rightful Jaredite kings are overthrown over the course of the nation's history, including the Jaredite's second, third, and fourth king, one of whom, Amr, was overthrown, reclaimed the kingdom, was overthrown again, and reclaimed the kingdom once more. Again, this hardly seems like an ideal form of government. Over the course of five chapters, Moroni easily covers over a thousand years of Jaredite history. Most of the 30-plus rulers mentioned in these chapters only warrant a handful of verses, although some of the more colorful characters fill up more space. Consider the before-mentioned Amr and his struggles keeping his kingdom. Amr is overthrown and imprisoned by his wicked son Jared, and then rescued by some of his other sons. Despite his treachery, Jared's life is spared. This was probably a mistake, given what happens next. Jared's daughter plots a scheme to have the king, her grandfather, killed through an alliance with one of the king's friends, Akish. The daughter of Jared dances for Akish, while Jared informs Akish that he'll give Akish his daughter in marriage if Akish will deliver him the head of his father. The whole plot sounds like something out of a Shakespearean tragedy with the daughter of Jared playing the part of Lady Macbeth. Fortunately for Amr, he is warned in a dream to flee out of the land with the remainder of his family. With Amr out of the way, Jared once again takes the kingdom. His triumph, however, is short-lived. Employing the treachery Jared and his daughter instilled in him, Akish has his friends murder Jared while on the throne. I've often wondered what Akish's wife thinks of all of this. She hatched a scheme to murder her grandfather out of some misguided affection for her father, only to see her father murdered the same way at the hand of her husband. Like I said, Shakespearean. Homer once again reclaims the kingdom after Akish and his grown sons kill each other in a later battle for the kingdom. It seems probable that the plots and deeds of Jared, his daughter, and Akish are the very secret combinations that Alma warned his son Helaman about in the Jaredite record. Moroni also offered this ominous observation after discussing the plot hatched by these villains regarding secret combinations as a whole. And they have caused the destruction of this people of whom I am now speaking, and also the destruction of the people of Nephi. And whatsoever nation shall uphold such secret combinations to get power and gain, until they shall spread over the nation, behold, they shall be destroyed. For the Lord will not suffer that the blood of his saints, which shall be shed by them, shall always cry unto him from the ground for vengeance upon them, and yet he avenged them not. Other interesting characters found within Ether chapters 7 through 11 include Amr's rightful heir, Emer, who saw the son of righteousness toward the end of his life, and four consecutive generations of would-be rulers who lived in captivity all their days. Throughout these chapters, we read about some truly horrible situations the Jaredites find themselves in. 
There are famines and rotten leaders and poisonous snakes. There are also good times too, including a period of time where Moroni observed that never could be a people more blessed than were they and more prospered by the hand of the Lord. And they were in a land that was choice above all lands, for the Lord had spoken it. One might ask, what was the point of this exceedingly truncated history? I'd propose it serves as a summary to one of the main themes of the Book of Mormon. We prosper when we are righteous, and we suffer when we are not. It is almost as if Moroni is saying, Okay, maybe you didn't get it when my father included dozens of examples of the consequences of righteousness and wickedness. I'm going to then speed through the history of a civilization, pausing only long enough to highlight that principle over and over again. Um, Can I make a confession? It took me a while and several times reading through the Book of Mormon before that principle really stuck for me. I was well into my 20s when I was rereading King Benjamin's final address to his people. In it, Benjamin is explaining why, no matter what we do, we will always be indebted to our God. He doth require that ye should do as he hath commanded you, for which if you do, he doth immediately bless you, and therefore he hath paid you, and you are still indebted unto him, and are and will be forever and ever, therefore of what have ye to boast." For too long, I failed to recognize where true happiness was found. I'm not saying I wasn't trying to live a gospel-centered life. I was. I guess I just bought into the lies that Madison Avenue and Hollywood were selling. I'd watch the commercials or movies with young, fit, and attractive actors making all sorts of questionable life choices and loving every minute of it, and there was a part of me that thought their lives were more fun than mine. I never wanted to be them but I definitely might have looked longingly at the great and spacious building. Still, I took comfort in knowing that those folks partying up in that building would get theirs in the end. Rereading King Benjamin's words, I realized something critical about life. Joy in the gospel isn't just for the hereafter. It is also for the here and now. I acknowledge that I'm a slow learner. Consider verse 24 of Mosiah 2 again. He doth require that ye should do as he hath commanded you, for which if ye do, he doth immediately bless you, and therefore he hath paid you, and ye are still indebted unto him, and are and will be forever and ever, therefore of what have ye to boast. According to Benjamin, the blessings of keeping the commandments are immediate, Our happiness doesn't come after the final judgment, but right now. For the past 20 years, I've pondered Benjamin's statement. Obviously, the blessings he speaks of aren't the type that remove any and all heartache or challenge. Bad things still happen to good people. Sometimes life doesn't seem fair. But I'm convinced that the blessings Benjamin speaks of are real. Perhaps they come in the peace of knowing that you're doing God's will or the happiness that naturally follows serving others, or something more tangible. But they do come, and I'm convinced that a life of keeping the commandments will bring more happiness and joy into this life than any other kind of living. I no longer cast a jealous glance at the great and spacious building. Now those looks are ones of pity. Speaking to a group of saints in Florida last year, President Russell M. Nelson said, 
The Lord gives his children boundaries to protect them from influences that will destroy them. Blessings always come by obedience to the law upon which that blessing is predicated. You can be sure that as you keep the commandments of God, you will reap the blessings that he has in store for you. And I believe that is a message that Moroni would want us to internalize from his abridgment of the Jaredite record. As we conclude, let me reaffirm the truths we've discussed in these chapters. The Lord is aware of us. Sometimes, when the wind blows and the storms crash all around us, He is pushing us towards our promised lands. We can make it. A righteous life is the happiest life, and we can find joy during even our hardest challenges. I bear testimony of these truths in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.